Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for how much you've already blessed our hearts this morning through the corporate gathering of your people. Father, we thank you for these beautiful children who were able to come up here and sing songs unto you. Father, thank you for the giftings that you've given people here in this body to be able to sing and to play instruments. And Lord, we're so grateful for them. And we pray that all of this would be done for your glory. Father, even now as we come into your word, I pray that you would give us, Lord, um, undistracted minds, that we would set aside the things, the burdens of life, to be reminded of grace, the grace found in and through your word. Even as we look at future things, Father, may we be encouraged. May our faith be strengthened. May our love be deepened for you. As we think about the future and the fact that for those of us who are in Christ, Lord, there is nothing that can separate us from your love, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Verses 9 through 13 is our text for this morning. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, go ahead and do that. Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 13. This is God's Word. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. By way of introduction this morning, I want you to keep your finger in Mark chapter 13. Keep your finger there, and I want you to go with me back to Daniel chapter 9. Okay? Daniel chapter 9. We'll come back to Mark chapter 13. But Daniel chapter 9 is a key prophetic text, as many of you know, from the Old Testament regarding future things. The year was about 536 B.C. A young man by the name of Daniel had been exiled along with other Jews close to 70 years ago by now, the time that this is written, to Babylon and then Persia. They had been exiled in what is known as the exile period. And in the providence of God, this young man, Daniel, had risen up the ranks in these foreign countries and even had obtained the favor of pagan heathen rulers in these kingdoms. And yet Daniel was not content. He understood that it was now about the time for that 70-year exile to end and forgot to intervene on behalf of his people Israel in accordance with his promises. And so Daniel was concerned for the future of his people, Israel. And so he prays here in Daniel chapter 9, as any godly person would do in times of turmoil like these, in times of affliction. He cries out to God, mourning for the sins of Israel, and also pleads for God's deliverance, as promised throughout the Old Testament. And so God, through the angel Gabriel, 
answers Daniel concerning the future of Israel. And what we have in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, is this record of God's special dealings with Israel. God, through his messenger, the angel Gabriel, tells Daniel what is to befall Israel in the future, in his special dealings with this nation. And so we are told in verse 24, if you notice, that these dealings with Israel will cover a span of 70 weeks. Verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. This is regarding Daniel's people, Israel, and your holy city, specifically Jerusalem. 70 weeks have been decreed for you. Now, without bombarding you with all of the gory details, though it would be really fun to do that this morning, to detail all of this and get into all the technicalities of this, without bombarding you with all the gory details, these weeks, literally the Hebrew is sevens. The week, a week, this word is sevens. And they refer to 77-year periods. 70 of these seven-year periods. Now do the math. 70 times 7 is what, kids? Nice. We have some mathematicians in here. 490 years. 70 times 7 equals 490 years. And so mark it. God's unique dealings with Israel will cover a span of 490 years. Whatever God is going to do with Israel, as outlined here, will span that 490 years. And for what sixfold purpose does God have here in verse 24, or He gives uh, for His dealings with Israel? Notice in verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. One, to finish the transgression. Two, to make an end of sin. Three, to make atonement for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal up vision and prophecy. Six, to anoint the most holy place. That's speaking of a time when all of those sixfold purposes will be definitive and will be final. And of course, that had not happened by this time. This is speaking of a future time when this is going to be accomplished. Now notice that verses 25 and 26 give us then the events that will transpire the first 69 weeks out of these 70 weeks. Verses 25 and 26 outline these events that will transpire in those first 69 weeks. Notice in verse 25, So you, Daniel, are to know and discern, here it is, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until... The, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Let's do our math again. 62 plus 7 is what? 69 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. What's this mean here? Well, the decree there refers to the command that the Persian king Artaxerxes gave to the Jews in Nehemiah 2 to return to Israel and rebuild the city. That was sometime between 445 and 450 B.C. Keep that 450 B.C. date in mind. Then he says, until Messiah, the prince, what is this referring to? Well, most believe that this could either be the birth of Jesus, who we know later to be Jesus, the Messiah, or better, the triumphal entry when Jesus was proclaimed as the Messiah. And that triumphal entry... Fast forward, 
was most likely in A.D. 33. And so get this. That triumphal entry happened approximately 483 years or so later in A.D. 33. Now, admittedly, these are estimates, okay? Give or take a few years, but it's amazing the precision and the exactness of the prophecy here from God through Gabriel to Daniel about Israel in the future. It's amazing. Now, what else is going to transpire before the 70th week? What else is going to transpire here? Look at verse 26 with me. Then after, notice after, not in, but after the 62 weeks. This is an addition notice from the text in verse 25. In addition to the seven weeks already mentioned, equaling 69 weeks. After this time, the Messiah will be cut off. What's that speaking about? The crucifixion of Christ. The death of Christ at Calvary. And so Messiah, Jesus, is cut cut off after the 69 weeks, but before, notice, the 70th week, which are the final seven years. Jesus' crucifixion is that first great event that is mentioned that will take place. But notice there's another great event that's going to resonate with you even as we just work through Mark chapter 13. The last couple of Sundays, verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people, here's the second great event, the people of the prince. This is a different prince than the one in verse 25. The people of the prince who is to come, he is yet to come, but the people will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. What is that speaking about? That is a reference, beloved, to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Amazing, isn't it? Staggering with precision and exactness, this prophecy that comes to pass later on. Jesus again reiterates it in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and 25, the parallel accounts of the Olivet Discourse. But this is where it comes from ultimately here. So please note, those two things, the crucifixion of Christ and the destruction of the temple happen after the 69 weeks, but before verse 27, which is the famous 70th week of Daniel. In verse 27, notice. And he, the prince from verse 26, who is, by the way, who? The Antichrist. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until they complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That terminology of abominations and desolation. We're going to look at that when we get later on into Mark chapter 13, verses 14 and following. The abomination of desolation. But what this is saying in verse 27 is that at the beginning of this seven-year period, which is the tribulation period, the so-called prince or ruler or the Antichrist will make a covenant of peace with Israel. Remember, Israel longs for peace. And they will be susceptible to this. At the beginning of the seven-year period, he makes a peace treaty with Israel, but midway, three and a half years into the tribulation period, he breaks that particular peace treaty and wars with Israel. 
And this rotten individual, the Antichrist, commits what Scripture refers to as the abomination of desolation by setting up an image of himself to be worshipped in the temple. Abomination is a code word in the Old Testament for something that is detestable or idolatrous. That's what he's going to do. And so from the midpoint of the tribulation forward, things only get worse as this tyrant Antichrist will only get worse himself. And in the end, right as Christ returns, at the tail end of the tribulation, he launches, the Antichrist launches a final attack on Israel and the people of God, culminating in what is known as the battle of what? Armageddon. According to Revelation 16, 16, at this battle, the Antichrist gathers all the armies of the world against Christ, the King, and he is thoroughly defeated. Amen? Thoroughly defeated. Satan is bound then for a literal thousand years during which Christ and his people reign upon the earth. And I realize I'm getting ahead of myself here in the next weeks ahead as we talk about the return of Christ as well. We'll talk about that as well as the abomination of desolation in Mark 13, 14 and following. But this is important. I realize that this is technical information, but this is in Scripture, so it's important for us to go through it and and, and understand this, right? And what's so important about Daniel in particular is that this is the framework. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, is the framework for understanding what Jesus is describing in the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 that will transpire before the return of Christ, which is known as the seven-year tribulation period or the 70th week of Daniel. Now, as you go back to Mark chapter 13, As I've told you, it's true that in one sense, we've gotten a taste of some of these things in the last 2,000 years or so of church history. Some of the things that Jesus describes are going to happen at the end of days. There have been milder contractions or birth pangs, if you will, glimpses, snapshots of some of these things, both in the first century and in the last 2,000 years of church history. But on the other hand, What the tribulation period describes is a time of unique, unprecedented, never-before-suffering and trial here in humanity. An outpouring, according to Revelation chapters 6-19, through which outlined the tribulation period, an outpouring of God's wrath upon the world and His consequences upon those who rebel against Him. You see, these events will culminate and to not simply local or regional, but global consequences. Global pouring out of the wrath of God. This will not just be on the earth, but cosmic in nature. This will not entail just some damage in one part of the world, but it'll be, it'll be worldwide, catas- cataclysmic, catastrophic, devastating for all. None will escape this. And so our Lord says here in Mark 13, that like birth pangs, These events will progressively get worse, escalate, and become more and more intense right before the return of Christ. Now, if you're taking notes, remember that we saw last week that right before the return of Christ, there will be intensifying, growing, first and foremost, uncontrolled deception. Uncontrolled deception. People will drink the Kool-Aid in the world of falsehood more and more, especially as things culminate in the last days. And there will be false teachers who, will, who are going to be self-acclaimed Christs, 
self-acclaimed saviors who are having people point to them or look to them for the answers. So there will be rampant deception and people will drink the Kool-Aid. People will follow these individuals. That's in verses 5 and 6. Then secondly, there's going to be unparalleled division in verses 7 through 8, at the first part of verse 8. More and more, as society becomes self-centered, self-motivated, we're going to see a selfish world where people and nations will grow more and more increasingly hostile and hateful toward one another, and that will lead to great conflict, not only amongst individuals, but between people groups. I mean, just imagine this. Just imagine a time of, of natural disasters as well. Natural disasters. That's the third thing. Unprecedented disasters. Imagine these times, even with natural disasters, of intense and increasing chaos in our world. Hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and famines will run rampant. And in connection with those, all kinds of chaos will ensue. Water lines broken, roads crumbling, emergency people and personnel not even being able to get to people who are in trouble and who need help because of these natural disasters and everything that connects to those. I mean, this is sobering, isn't it? This is sobering. I think we oftentimes, beloved, live even subtly. We live not mindful of the fact that things will not always remain as they are. That things are continually changing. That the world is spiraling downward in terms of wickedness and hostility and hatred. We oftentimes just treat life so lightly. So uh, as, if, as if life is just going to continue on as it is. And we don't take the days of our lives seriously. And this is such a great reminder of the fact that one day there's a divine reckoning that's going to come. God is going to pour His wrath upon the world in an unprecedented way. And we're already seeing glimpses, snapshots of that. We're getting a taste of that already in our world. Well, today we want to see forth that there will be increasing, growing, intensifying, unequaled distress. Unequaled distress in verses 9 through 13. This is where it really gets personal. What Christians can expect. You know, as Christians, we believe that the Scriptures teach in places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15, the end of that great chapter, and passages like 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that we are going to be raptured, if you are here as a Christian, before the tribulation. That there, we are going to be taken out of this world if we are here as believers. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that we will be delivered from the wrath to come. And that terminology in that context of 1 Thessalonians is the idea of being rescued from the wrath, the ultimate outpouring of God's wrath at the tribulation. We believe that as believers. But did you know that even during the tribulation, there's going to be the greatest revival ever of people coming to know Christ? Jews and Gentiles, people that are non-Jewish, are going to hear the gospel there's two witnesses that Revelation speaks of that are going to be, to be catapulted onto the world and they're going to be preaching the gospel. People are going to come to know Christ, but they're also going to suffer and they're going to be martyred during the tribulation. And so, what can they expect? And what do we already get a taste of even as believers here in this world that we live in? 
as we look at the unequal distress upon Christians, I want us to see four aspects of this, okay? In verses, excuse me, 9 through 13. Notice, first of all, the caution. The caution in verse 9. Look at Jesus' warning and caution once again. But be on your guard, he says. But be on your guard. This is the repeated drumbeat, as we've already seen, of the Olivet Discourse of Jesus' sermon. I mean, we talk about application and takeaway in sermons. If there is a takeaway or an application in Jesus' sermon, the Olivet Discourse, it is right here. There is this repeated caution to take heed, to let no one mislead you. Look at back in verse 5. He cautioned, see to it that no one misleads you. Verse 9 here, but be on your guard. Look at verse 23, but take heed. Verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. Verse 35, therefore be on the alert. Verse 37, what I say to you, disciples, I say to all future disciples, be on the alert. Listen to me. If you're here this morning, whether you lived in the first century any time or any time in the last 2,000 years or you're living here in the present, this command by Jesus to continually be watchful, to continually be perceptive, to understand and see the signs of the times and live accordingly, redeeming the time because the days are evil, is directly for you. For all of us, this caution and furthermore, there's a sense of, of urgency in Jesus' caution here. Because, you see, the reason for the Lord's repeated caution is that he tells us that suffering and persecution will only continue to escalate as Jesus' return approaches. Note that this suffering, opposition, and persecution was true first and foremost in the first century with Jewish persecution. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard. Why? For they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. Note the Jewish language there, courts and flogging and synagogues. That reference to courts there is a a reference to the Jewish authorities of the day, of Jesus' day, to the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, who had been given a certain degree of authority by the Romans, of freedom to govern the affairs of the Jewish people. And the Sanhedrin would have these sub-councils, these mini-courts, that would try Jewish people in the synagogues, and if they found them to be guilty, they would punish them in the very synagogue where they, where they tried a particular person. They would render consequences upon them. You would receive 39 stripes or lashes. The prescribed consequence was 40 lashes, but they would do 39, one short of the prescribed, to make sure that you didn't go over 40. Okay? So you get 39 of these. You may remember that in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Paul is talking about his credentials reluctantly, his credentials as an apostle. And he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. 39 lashes. These Paul received for preaching the gospel, for being a witness of the gospel. And these lashes were inflicted with this leather whip that was full of sharp pieces of animal bone and sharp pieces of metal. And with each lash, as you can imagine, layers of skin will be removed from the victim. With every lash, eventually organs as well, pieces of flesh, you can imagine the rest. This was a terrible punishment that that some Christians in the first century, because of their faith, experienced. Well, not only was there Jewish persecution at the time, 
But throughout church history, notice second, there will be Gentile persecution. Persecution from the world, from the non-Jewish world. Look at the middle of verse 9. And you will stand, that's the idea of standing on trial to make a defense. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And look down in verse 13. You will be hated by all because of my name. You will stand before secular authorities. You will be hated by all. Jesus is saying as times progressively get worse and as you suffer, listen, you will have the privilege of standing before the secular great rulers of the nations and making a stand for the sake of my name. What a privilege, beloved. What a privilege. We could see that as a, as a scary thing. But the testimony of so many of our brethren Christians over the centuries is that at that moment when they stood before people, heathens who were anti-Christ, and they were going to be martyred for the sake of their faith, the Spirit of God gave them grace, didn't He? To be able to bear up under that trial. Boy, we need to remember this in our day and age. As things continue to get worse and worse, what a privilege we should relish, relish in the opportunity as things escalate in our culture that when we are treated with indifference, that when the truth is opposed, that when we are persecuted for the sake of Christ, we should relish in the opportunity to speak for Christ. Amen? And may God give us the grace to be able to do that. Just like the Apostle Paul. Think about the little Apostle Paul who was meant just like us. He later experienced this type of having to stand firm for the sake of Christ in the book of Acts. Little Paul, a man just like you and I, flesh and blood, in the power of the Spirit, stood before rulers like Felix and Festus and Herod Antipas and King Agrippa I. Read the book of Acts, especially the latter chapters, and just be encouraged by that. How Paul boldly and courageously made a dent for the gospel right smack in the middle of the Roman Empire. Amazing by God's grace. He was a man just like us. And I have been praying and pleading and asking God both for myself and for us that we would have the courage, beloved, also in this secular, hostile culture to make a stand for Jesus. All the more. And I have been praying for some of you young people sitting in here that as this culture gets more and more hostile, that you would grab a hold of your faith and be a follower of Jesus and love Jesus so much so as to make a stand in the secular culture for the, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you young people, that you would do that by God's grace. Like that young lady in Michigan, that valedictorian in Michigan who either this weekend or coming up, She has fought for the opportunity in her speech as valedictorian in Michigan of her high school to be able to share the gospel with her lost friends. Why? Because she loves them. Because this might be the last opportunity to speak the gospel to many of them and to have that kind of platform. You know how that young lady has gone out on the limb with all of the secular heathen colleges and universities that she can go to? I mean, this could be the end of her future from a human perspective. But God will preserve her. God will empower her. God is going to use that message of the gospel that she proclaims and shares as a means by His Spirit and the power of the Spirit to draw people to Himself. Oh, may you do that, young people. May you have that sense of courage and boldness to be able to do that. But you've got to grab a hold of your faith first. 
How, would you, how are you going to defend the Lord Jesus Christ if you're not following him yourself? And so over the centuries, Christians have suffered this way at the hands of even civil government, but made an impact while doing it. You know what Tertullian, the early church apologist, said? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more that you persecute Christians, the more that you oppose Christians, the more that Christians are killed and burned at the stake, the greater the church has grown, right? It's the unstoppable church of Jesus Christ that will never pass away. Do you know what one of the most thriving churches in the world is? It's the church, the true church of Christians in China, of communist China. I remember, I'll never forget hearing the testimony of a, of a professor of mine, Dr. Wong, a professor at my college. And he talked about how part of his testimony and how he was drawn to the Lord is that during the rise of communism in China, their family had a, a number of um, communist soldiers show up to their house. They were doing this, making their rounds to families that they even suspected were Christians or whatever, that others um, pointed to, that they were maybe they had Bibles. And so they go into the, his, his home and they begin to interrogate the family and even to look for Bibles to confiscate. And obviously they couldn't find anything. After a while of this, he tells of how they took his brother outside, his older brother, who was a solid believer, and they began beating him repeatedly outside in the yard over and over again. I mean, beatings with bats and all of that or clubs. And eventually, it got so bad that they stopped. They rushed him to the hospital. And there at the hospital, they did everything that they could to uh, preserve his life. But he died. And right before he died, he tells of how his brother asked his mom, Mom, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? And basically told her, because I'm going home to be with Christ. And he died after the prayer with a smile. With a smile. I mean, that is amazing. Those are true stories in the history of the church, beloved. Persecuted believers. And when we hear this, these kinds of things, it shouldn't shock us. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Because you belong to me. We should expect this. We shouldn't, any of us, have the expectation that we're going to be treated any differently than Jesus, our Lord, right? Jesus polarized the world, and so we will as well if we are true followers of Christ, brethren. And this will often be the case even when you're innocent. And later this fall, we're going to see how the Lord Jesus himself underwent such severe punishment. What for? Because he sinned? Because he did something wrong, because he broke the law, because he was guilty, because he was some criminal. No, Jesus was inflicted with gruesome punishment. Why? Because of us. Because he bore our sins. He did it for us. That's why he went to the cross. He suffered at the hands of the Gentile authorities to pave the way for us to be forgiven by faith and to be granted the gift of eternal life. Jesus. And beloved, if this is the case with our Lord, how much more us who are followers of Christ? You know, I've shared my heart with you before. 
that even with all of the difficulties, even personal for me, as they have, there have been difficulties for you, I am thankful and grateful for this past year. You know why? Because I believe that this past year has been a sort of triage of Christianity here in America. Where God has exposed many of our idols. And for so many of us, one of our idols is that we love comfort and we love security. Amen? And we think to ourselves, how dare anyone take away my rights? How dare anyone take away my freedoms? Nothing wrong with fighting for rights and fighting for freedoms within a country that promises that. But so oftentimes in conversations amongst Christians this past year and after that, when we talk about freedoms and rights, we're not, we don't mean freedom to preach the gospel, freedom to worship. We mean other peripheral things, other secondary things that in the light of eternity don't matter at the end of the day. If we fight for freedom and we want liberty in our country and we speak up on that, it's so that we could preach the gospel unhindered, beloved. So that we would worship Christ. Do what God has called us to do. See, frankly, for many of us as Americans, Christians living in America, it's audacious, even blasphemy to speak of suffering, opposition, and persecution here in America. No, 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 no. That's not supposed to happen in America. That's supposed to happen somewhere else, not in this country, baby. Listen, get ready, because as you can tell from our culture, things are escalating. Things are only getting worse. And we cannot think through the grid of American lenses. We need to think through the grid of the Bible and God's word, the gospel. Amen? Amen. Jesus never said we would be exempt living in America, brothers and sisters. He never promised that. The scriptures are so clear that as Christians, persecution should be our expectation. Later on, in fact, two days later from Mark 13, in the upper room, Jesus will say to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. In the world, you will have what? Trouble, flipsis, tribulation, same word, flipsis, affliction, trouble. But he says, take courage. I have overcome the world. John sixteen thirty three. Somewhere else he says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Take courage. Philippians one twenty nine is especially eye-opening for us as believers. For to you, Christians, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That word granted, by the way, is the word from which we get grace for unmerited and unmerited, undeserved favor or kindness or gift that's saying in philippians 129 not only has god graced you with belief in him salvation but he's also given you this gift also to suffer for his sake it's a gift to suffer experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me writes paul and now here to be in me i'm in this boat too he says i'm suffering as well and so jesus says you need to be on guard because of the coming growing intensified suffering and persecution that is only going to escalate. But notice that it even gets worse. Though Jesus mentions Jewish and Gentile persecution or persecution from the world, nothing can be worse, at least to me, than the third one. Family persecution will come. Family persecution. I mean, this takes us to, to a deeper 
different level, doesn't it? As the end draws near, look down in verse 12. Brother will betray brother. Oh, you don't expect that in a family, right? You don't expect that in, except in our day and age, I suppose. But I read the other day on Voice of the Martyrs of a Muslim sibling reporting his brother for turning to Christ, to the authorities. His own brother turning him in because his brother had turned to Jesus. Brother will betray brother to death, verse 12. And a father, implied, will also betray his child. Boy, I mean, some of us can't even begin to imagine such a thing, turning our back on our children because of Christ. There will be some who will do that. And then he says, and children, verse 12, will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Watch this. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. What's that all about? There's going to come a time when things will escalate to an extent that children will not only back talk at their parents, rebel against their parents, but worse, they will even report them to authority so that their parents will be put to death. That's how much things will escalate. That's how bad it's going to get. In this downward spiral of suffering. This is especially sad and sobering, right? For there will come a time when even family ties will mean nothing to non-Christians. When even family relationships will be deeply severed because of our faith in Christ. We're seeing much of this now, aren't we? We're beginning to see this level of hatred even amongst family members because somebody professes to know Christ. I read the other day the sad account of a Christian woman in the Middle East who was repeatedly ridiculed, repeatedly slapped by her own son because of her Christian faith. And the son even went so far as to report his mother to the governing authorities. You need to join Voice of the Martyrs. You need to be, be educated, brothers and sisters, if you're not about what's going on in other countries of the world. Some of you are doing that. Some of you are doing that, and it's so encouraging and so revitalizing, isn't it? It allows us to pray for our brethren in other countries when we read these stories and hear these testimonies. But this is tough stuff. And yet Jesus, Jesus said that it would happen, that family ties would be impacted because of our faith in Him. Listen to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He explains, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, just know that things are going to get polarized even in your own family, if you follow me. And loving Christ above our family members means... That we are going to do what He desires for us to do, even if that means turning our back on biological family. Who doesn't follow Christ? I know that this is hard. But I really believe that one of the things that we need to do right now as pastors and elders in churches is to prepare you, brothers and sisters, Christians, for things to escalate in this country. We need to prepare you to suffer well. Because the... We, we're not, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't think if we suffer, we should expect and anticipate suffering will come. So how do we suffer well, right? In that trial. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. 
persecuted. Paul would know. He was aware of the 11 of the 12 disciples who, according to church history, died a martyr's death for their faith in Jesus. And I've been reading a lot of church history lately just to be reminded of the faithfulness of God and the fact that things, things of the past continue to come back into the present just repackaged, right? Same destructive ideologies, same errors in the church, same sins, same evil mindsets. They're just repackaged now in our culture. I've been reading about this. And there have been literally hundreds and thousands of brethren who have died a martyr's death. Tortured. Tormented. Burned at the stake. Beheaded. Sawn in two. Crucified upside down. Enduring all kinds of torture. This is what has befallen the church of Christ over the centuries but will escalate to unprecedented epic proportions during the tribulation. For tribulation saints. Now why? For what cause have they given their lives? That's our second point. Notice the cause in verse 9. Why will they suffer? Why do we suffer? Why will they stand before heathen rulers? The end of verse 9 tells us, as a testimony to them. Testimony of whom? Testimony of Christ. And then look at verse 9 again. For my sake, Jesus says. And then again in verse 13, because of my name, these things will happen. See, this isn't suffering for suffering's sake. This isn't suffering because Christians particularly enjoy suffering. Come on, baby, bring it on. Bring more opposition, more suffering. Bring it on. Which of us would say that right now? That we love this. Something's wrong with you. Just come and talk to me after if you do, okay? Nobody particularly enjoys this. No one in their right mind enjoys opposition, embarrassment, ridicule, indifference, ostracism, beatings, suffering, persecution. Who enjoys that? I don't know about you, but I want to be convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that if I suffer, it's for a worthy cause. And what cause could be greater than the cause of King Jesus? Amen? The cause of Christ. It was the apostles in Acts 5.41 who after getting brutally whipped for preaching Christ, it says this, that they went away rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. There's the cause. For the exaltation of Christ, they went right on preaching Jesus as the Christ and they did it rejoicing. What? That's crazy. Who does such a thing? I'll tell you. Those who love King Jesus. Those who can't stand the name of Christ being shamed in our world. This is why Paul, as he sits in jail, right into the Philippian believers, he says in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul says, listen, whether I live or die, it's all about Christ. If God chooses to keep me in this world, I'm going to be fruitful. It will be much better to go home to be with Christ. I long for that, but if he keeps me here, I'm going to be fruitful and serve God's people for the exaltation of Christ. Whether I'm here or I'm there, I want to honor and glorify King Jesus. I hope that that's your heart. I hope that that's your heart, brothers and sisters. That as things escalate in our world, that you are being gentle and gracious, remembering that you too at one point were it not for the grace of God, you were lost as well, but that you would boldly make a stand for Jesus, courageously making a defense for Him. 
telling people about the hope of Christ. You remember back in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, that Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Listen, one day, one glorious day future, we will share in the victory of Christ. And the question is, will we make a stand for him in the present? And there's going to be a time in the tribulation. And then what is called the great tribulation, as we're going to see next week, when people will suffer, many will be martyred for their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, but we get a foretaste of that now in the present, don't we? We taste of some of that even in the present. Well, what should be our singular purpose? What should be our singular purpose, beloved, as things escalate in our world? Jesus tells us here, if you're taking notes, third, the commission. The commission. What commission is that, Pastor? The commission of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Look at verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. That is both a a stated fact that the gospel will be preached to all the nations, but it's also a huge comfort and encouragement to us. Why? Because even with all the suffering and all the persecution that befalls Christians in the present and escalates in the future, the gospel will go forth and there is nothing that Satan or his enemies could do to end that, to hinder that. Nothing. Hear me. Whether you're suffering in the first century, the last 2,000 years, or one day future at the tribulation, when everything escalates, the Great Commission needs to be the focus of Christians. The gospel needs to be proclaimed. And even during the tribulation, when things reach epic proportions, there are people who are going to be proclaiming the gospel even during the tribulation. The power of the gospel would be going forth. The good news that Jesus died to save sinners and to reconcile them to God. That good news will continue to be proclaimed. And many Jews and Gentiles, as I told you, will believe in Christ even during the tribulation. And so even as we put a taste, uh, we get a taste of opposition in the present, Christ wants us to bear witness of him, brothers and sisters. He wants us to proclaim the, the gospel. Can I ask you, this morning, when was the last time that you shared Christ with somebody? Even knowing some of these things, maybe not knowing all of the details of the end of days and the last days, but when was the last time that because of a, of a desire to see Christ glorified and love for the world around you, people who are lost, when was the last time that you actually shared your faith? Somebody in your home? Somebody in your neighborhood? Somebody around where you're maybe running your errands? Somebody in your work environment? When was the last time you took the opportunity out of a sense of urgency for these things that we're learning about and you actually shared Christ with people? See, we need to be sharing Christ. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that that the gospel is, is foolishness. The word of the cross is foolishness to the world, but it is, it is, uh, the, it's the wisdom and the power of God for those who believe. We need to be preaching the gospel. Well, fourth, with all of these things that are so sobering, and even the call to the Great Commission, we need the comforter, don't we? 
That's the fourth point. Notice the comforter in verse 10. I find this amazing that the Lord mentions this. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. What hour is that? The hour of trouble and tribulation. For it is not you who speak, but listen to this. It is the Holy Spirit. I love this. Jesus assures his disciples and us that even in the face of opposition, of arrest at the hands of our enemies, the Holy Spirit will be with Christians. He will come to our aid. He will give us the words to speak in defense of the gospel. And that's not all. Look at the end of verse 13. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And that's not saying that only those who make it to the end will be saved from their sins. What that's saying is that those who are saved will endure to the end and be ushered into heaven. And the Spirit will be with us all the while. That's a promise to Christians. That ultimately Christians will not crumble under trial in a way where they will be separated from God and the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How will it be possible that Christians, brothers and sisters, will endure, persevere until the end and be saved? It will be because of the Spirit's indwelling presence, His teaching us, encouraging us, comforting us, empowering us. Amen? What a comfort. What a comfort that should be for us. So it's so wonderful that the Lord Jesus would bring up the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the midst of this. But on the other hand, so fitting, so fitting, because it's he who grants Christians the grace to finish the race, the indwelling Holy Spirit. What are some implications for us as we close here? What are some implications for us as we understand the future? As we hear these words of our Lord, can I give you four First, this understanding of the future should strengthen our faith. It should strengthen our faith. Knowing the future and how the story ends should grant us confidence that if our faith is in Jesus, then greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? Amen. Two, this understanding of future things should fuel our witness. This should fuel our witness. All the more our passion as we understand these things should be to share and preach the gospel to anyone and everyone. Anything that moves, you should be preaching the gospel to, right? Love for the lost must drive us to tell people about the hope of Jesus. That there is one who saves, who rescues from sin and from the coming wrath of God for their sin. And his name is Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, Knowing the end, we should be vigilant. Knowing the end, we should be vigilant. We should be especially watchful. Watchful, because we understand that this life is spiritual warfare. That this life is not to be taken lightly. That this life is not a game. That our days, brothers and sisters, are to be lived and redeemed for the glory of God. We should be vigilant and watchful. Fourth, an understanding of the end should make us worshipful and grateful. Worshipful and grateful. Christ in coming to earth, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, has delivered us from the wrath to come. Think about that. Relish that. Ponder that great reality. That you have been rescued from God's coming wrath because of King Jesus. That if you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, even those who are martyred during the tribulation... 
will be safe and secure in the arms of God because of the salvation that Christ has already procured on their behalf. Isn't that amazing? That's worth being grateful and worshipful. One last one. Five. Understanding where things are headed in the last days should cause you to give your life to Christ. Should cause you to give your life to Christ. The event of the the events of the last days are scary days. But hear me. They're only scary for those who are without Christ. For those who have not trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus and been forgiven and been reconciled to God, you surely don't want to face God someday without Jesus. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus that you might escape His coming judgment. Listen, there is no sin. There's no sin that you can raise up your hand right now and say, Pastor, what about this sin? What about these thoughts? What about this action? What about how I hurt this person? Surely God cannot accept me because of that. Listen, every single sin is forgivable. Every sin is forgivable. Except one sin, and that is the sin of rejecting God's free gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one day when you stand before God, will you be clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Embrace God's free gift of salvation in and through His Son. That's a huge implication, isn't it? Regarding your soul, as we understand these things concerning the last days. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank You. Thank You for the sobering reminders through this prophecy of Christ at the Olivet Discourse and in Daniel 9. We thank You, Lord, for entrusting these, this treasure to us of truth concerning the end, that we would be warned and cautioned. Father, thank you that many of us in here have believed and trusted in Christ and that our souls are secure and that we need not live in fear, live in doubt. Father, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And I pray that others in here this morning, today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day when they would turn from their sins and put their trust in Christ, that they too would be rescued from the wrath to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.